Hello and welcome to Living Heritage, a show about people who are engaged in the heritage and culture sector, all those who keep heritage alive at the community level. I'm Dale Jarvis, and today's guest is Peggy Bulger. Peggy Bulger retired in 2011 as the second director of the American Folklife Center at the Library of Congress, where she served from 1999. A native of New York State, she holds a BA in Fine Arts from the State University of New York at Albany, an MA in Folk Studies from Western Kentucky University, and a PhD in Folklore and Folklife from the University of Pennsylvania. A folklorist, consultant, and producer, Peggy has been documenting folklife and developing and managing folklife programs for more than 40 years. Peggy, I'm delighted that you are on the show. <laughs> I was only a child when I started. <laughs> you, were, you, were, you were three years old when you started, I know. Uh, well, I, I am delighted that you're, you're here, and uh, it may sound surprising to some to, to someone listening that that you're here in, in St. John's, but you, you've been coming to Newfoundland for a very long time. Yeah. Um, actually, my husband and I consider Newfoundland to be our second home, um, and that all has to do with folklore. Uh, originally, when I was going to go back to graduate school to get a degree in folklore, a PhD, um, you know that uh, Memorial University is one of the uh, premier programs. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a lot of us from the states consider Memorial right along with the University of Pennsylvania and Indiana University. And uh, so I came up to uh, take a look and uh, fell in love, both my husband and I fell in love with Newfoundland. Uh, St. John's was wonderful, but we ended up going to a little outport uh, and spending some time in the Bonavista Peninsula. And um, we were hooked. We uh, we ended up coming back year after year. And so now we're now that I'm retired, um, we come up all summer for the past four years. And you have a very historic property uh, ah, in, in the community. Yes, yeah, which yes has, we uh, do. Yeah. We uh, we bought the house sight unseen. The mayor of Keels Keels is the name of the town. The mayor of Keels called me and said, Peggy. He says. Uh, we think that you and Doug should buy Jack Wheeler's house because he died and it's for sale. And I thought, oh, my gosh, he thinks we're rich Americans. And I was going to graduate school. I did end up going to Pennsylvania. My husband was a new nurse. We had no money. I said, wow. I said, well, Claude, I'd love to buy the house, but we don't have the money. He says it's going for $500. (laughs) Anyway, there's no bargains like that anymore. But anyway, this, this house is... I couldn't remember exactly what it looked like, but it is a beautiful house. It's it was, very cute, yeah. It is called the Billy Wheeler House. It's a traditional outport building. It was built around 1890 by Billy Wheeler's father, but Billy Wheeler actually did a lot of the work on the inside. And for those in Newfoundland may have seen some of Billy's furniture. He was yeah. a famous furniture maker for uh, Outport uh, Newfoundland, and uh, Walter Peddle has done a lot of work. He's a scholar who's done a lot of work on Outport furniture. So all the furniture from our house pretty much went to the rooms, and it, it's there, and except for a few things that were built into the house. But we've been working on this house for 30 years now, but it it's great now. It's, so it's, the, it's, it's the perfect house for a folklorist right? in, in many ways. It is. Yeah. It is. And um, we loved working on it. We And, you know, you're working on a house like that. People will stop. And we've met so many people from Newfoundland. And that's the one thing that I think um, people don't realize how important it is to just talk to um, 
you know, everyday people. Mm. You don't have to talk to somebody who has a position or somebody who's important or somebody who's exotic. Um, if you start talking to your neighbors or people from the next town, Ten minutes into the conversation, you're going to find something extraordinary about this person. Mm -hmm. Everybody has a story. And so we would be sitting by the house as people come by looking for the devil's footprints, which is one of the things in all the guidebooks and the tourism books. They say, go to Kiel's to see the devil's footprints. And these are geological um, indentations in the rock that look kind of like cloven hoofed footprints and so I can't tell you how many people will stop at our house and say we're looking for the devil's footprints and then we end up talking to them and then they uh, tell us their stories about uh, growing up uh, usually in another part of Newfoundland or Nova Scotia or whatever and it's been an extraordinary experience uh, being at the end of the road there. Yeah. <laughs> and I think this this idea of, of you know the importance of talking to ordinary everyday people and uh-huh. and revealing those stories that is at the heart of of folklore. Right, That's really, what it's all about. It is, and and um, in the past, I guess when when folklore as a discipline um, uh, first was being. Um, you know, getting its its footing, uh, people thought of folklorists as being kind of stuffy scholars who would be in the archive and they'd, you know, um, be somewhat more uh, more like a uh, anthropologist with um, a lot of outside um, ideas, you know, and not be close. To the people, what I love about what's happening with folklore now, with the youngest generation and your generation, is the fact that public folklore has been accepted. And public folklore is very different than just teaching in the university or, you know, um, being a scholar, which is very important in writing books and whatever. Public folklore is actually you are hired by the people to actually tell their story. I mean, you're paid by the province to make sure that what's happening today will not be forgotten. And um, the most important thing that's happened in our uh, lifetime really is the technology has caught up with this kind of work mm-hmm. where you can actually go into the field with a not with a 500 pound machine <laughs> and you know a giant camera you've got a uh, very portable equipment where you can get people's voices you can get people's images um, for the, for posterity there's a there's a story about Herbert Halpert who founded the folklore <laughs> department here going around with a converted ambulance full of uh, yes. equipment you know and you're right. In these days, you can hold that much equipment in the palm of your hand, which is a, a remarkably freeing for someone who's out doing doing field work. Right. Well, and I think Herbert, um, you know, he used the, uh, well, at the time, it wasn't called the American Folklife Center. He used the Library of Congress equipment, mm-hmm. which was a giant acetate disc recorder. I mean, it, and it literally, we have it, or they still have it at the American Folklife Center, um, and we would wheel it out when people wanted to see what did Alan Lomax use in the field and what did Herbert Halpert use in the field. And it's this giant thing. And I thought, and it had to run off a car battery yeah. because there's where you would go, there's no electricity. And so um, 
we're very spoiled now. You know, we go out with our iPhones and take great <laughs> pictures and, you know, we record people. Um, but that's, that's so wonderful. The one thing about, uh, folklore, which I think is so, so important is that we're, I guess it's the, just a different perspective from oral history and anthropology and sociology. Everybody has, they're interviewing people and getting really important information about people. A folklorist usually is asking people about things that are really intangible and, um, you know, not the story of their life necessarily, but the story of what makes their life so different from anybody else. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's a, it's a really important thing to get on tape it's, and to be in the archive because, of, you know, the next generation of Newfoundlanders who come along, um, in our lifetime, we have seen, I mean, even in the time that I've been in Newfoundland, I, we started coming when the cod fishery was in full swing. Sure, yeah. And that whole way of life has, you know, changed dramatically. Changed absolutely, totally, and will never be the same. So it's so important to talk to people who are now the last of those uh, folks who grew up with the flakes and mm-hmm. the. You know, it's not history to them; it's their life. So, you know? so what was your introduction to to work in public folklore? Well, when I I ended up <clears throat> with an arts degree, trying to get a job, and realized <laughs> I better go back to school, and I thought I would go for museum studies, and I found out that there was a program in folk studies. I had no idea that anybody could study something so incredibly wonderful because it it really encompassed a lot of things I was interested in. I was, you know, part of the folk song revival, friends with Pete Seeger and a bunch of people in upstate New York, so I had that music background, but I was also very interested in everything else, uh, craft and uh, vernacular architecture. So um, when I graduated in 1974 from uh, Western Kentucky, I was again tasked with trying to find a job. And, um, you know, the jobs in folklore, everybody complains, oh, the jobs in this are bad. Well, believe me, 1974, you come out, you got a degree in folklore. Uh, it was, there were, there were no public folklore right, programs. Yeah. There was nothing. If you were going to go teach, you had to have a PhD. And if you had a master's degree, um, you're kind of out there dangling in the wind. But it was, it was actually very good because our generation who came out, who had master's degrees in folklore, we had to make it up. We really had to think about how can I use those skills in different ways. And, uh, you know, nowadays in the United States, there's about 40 states that have state folk life programs and state folklorists. And, um, we were just talking. It's amazing to me. Newfoundland, yay! Newfoundland yeah, is the we, first to is, have a yeah. provincial folklorist. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> because it's an um, really important work. And in the United States, we had a precedent for that. We had, you know, during, as you all know, the um, the Great Depression, and 
Franklin Roosevelt decided to put people back to work, but instead of putting out-of-work teachers and journalists and writers, you know, building roads or something like that, he said, no, no, we've got to have a federal writers project. And so all of those folks in the 1930s, that was the first time the United States had a government-run, really it was an oral history program where people were documented. And those uh, materials are so important today. I mean, nobody would quibble with the fact that, especially the recordings, the, the Federal Writers Project had a lot of people going out and taking notes and doing oral histories, but the folks that got the recording machines and, and <clears throat> actually recorded the voices of, say, uh, people who lived under the institution of slavery. Yeah. Unbelievably powerful. Yeah, and those those become incredibly valuable records then within a generation. And know, they're used all the time. They're used in museums. They're yeah. used in um, university classes. They're used uh, for feature films. Um, so when I worked at the Library of Congress, that was one of the um, most important things that we rode herd on was like all the requests to use the Federal Writers Project uh, recordings and, you know, how to get those materials out mm-hmm. and to be used. So you graduated from Western Kentucky, and, and mm-hmm. where did you end up working? I ended up in a place I just as, as exotic to me as Newfoundland, I ended up in Florida. <laughs> I had never been to Florida in my life. I'd never been south of the Mason-Dixon line. It was yeah. very provincial. Uh, I grew up in upstate New York, and pretty much when I went to western Kentucky, I thought, wow, this is really, really weird. This is so different from New York. And I thought I knew the south. <laughs> well, the upland south and the deep south are a whole different ball game. So I ended up in rural north Florida, uh, which is basically the real deep south mm. as a northerner. And uh, I actually had an incredible experience. Um, my job was to, pretty much similar to your job, I think, um, I was to be the state folklorist, and I had a pickup truck, and I traveled all over the state of Florida and tried to find out what, you know, what there was out there to document. And so I went from Pensacola to Key West and and uh, just found amazing things and realized, oh my gosh, you know, this job was supposed to be a one-year contract to document the folk arts of Florida. And I thought, oh my, gosh, so couldn't even... Couldn't even put a dent in well, it. Well, no. No, no, as you know. Yes. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I tried. <laughs> yeah, so it ended up being, I, I ended up staying uh, 12 years. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So. And and how how do you make choices about what to document? Uh, because there is so much, you know, it is kind of a never-ending project in a way. It how, is. How do you identify the the the, the, the topics or the items that are most at risk or most deserving of your of your limited attention? Right. Um, well, and I think um, most public folklorists know this is that it's a combination of um, luck and serendipity. Uh, Everything, if you think about it, is worthy of documentation. Mm-hmm. But some things are really more um, 
at risk. So you would think of it almost like in environmental terms, like what's really, you know, we better document this because it's changing so quickly. And yeah. Florida, it's interesting what's happening with Newfoundland now with the rise of tourism and the demise of the, uh, you know, the cod fishery. You have something similar to what happened in Florida many years ago in the 1950s when Disney was coming in and it was it was a tourist destination always but the traditional way of life was really going by the wayside the shrimpers the fishermen the the people who had made their living for years in a very remote place because Florida was very remote um, all of a sudden were inundated with with uh, tourists so to me that that's where I I put a lot of uh, effort into writing grants to document uh, occupations that were no longer uh, going to be needed. So when a fishery dies, say when they close the fishery, they also, you know, net making, mm-hmm. boat building, you know, all of those. All those secondary Yeah, all yeah. of those occupations, traditional ways of life go by the wayside too. And so... Um, a lot of people think of the people who are the fishermen themselves, but I, I ended up in Florida doing a lot on the shrimping industry because they were going through some of the same thing. I did a documentary in 1980 out of Fernandina Beach on Amelia Island. It was the birthplace of the modern shrimping industry, and uh, at the time I did the documentary, there were 200 shrimp boats a day going out of Fernandina, I live there now, and there's eight shrimping boats so going quite a, out quite a day. dramatic change, yeah. Totally, totally dramatic change. So, and the net making business, the um, I had documented the big net making business. They had done shrimp nets for all over Florida and the southeast coast. They now are making sports nets. It's oh. very interesting. So they've least. adapted their business. To, that they yeah. have done a very good job of taking a traditional craft and uh, updating it for the 21st century. They still make shrimp nets, but if they were depending on that, they'd be out of business because, like I say, there's eight boats. You know, mm-hmm. I always find that I find that fascinating as a folklorist when when there are traditions that are in a state of flux and a state of change. I think sometimes people outside the discipline, they, they think of tradition as something that is somehow fixed. And within it, we kind of realize that tradition is always evolving. And, and oh, that's yeah. kind of an exciting thing. That's an, yeah. an exciting place to be as a folklorist, yeah. to see how people are adapting to the, to their changing situation. Yeah, and I, I, I have to say I was really happy to find out that um, the Burbank family, the net makers, had... Uh, they actually are doing very well because mm-hmm. they make uh, 80% of the sports nets for soccer, basketball, baseball. The backdrops that you see on the television, they're usually from Fernandina Beach. But they're still employing net makers doing with the same traditional tools. It's just a different pattern. You know, it's not... The cobra pattern for the uh, shrimp trawler, but it's it's the same uh, tradition, just updated. Mm-hmm. So you work with you work with shrimpers, you work with net net menders. Is there any other particular traditions or occupations that stand out in in your memory that you worked with? Oh gosh, well in Florida, um, I really worked a lot with musicians, yeah. and uh, so 
we did a project called Drop On Down in Florida, and uh, I was very romantic. You know, I was very young when I went to Florida, and I, I decided that I wanted to follow in the footsteps of the federal writers who had recorded a lot of music back in the 1930s. So it would have been Zora Neale Hurston and Alan Lomax and Stetson Kennedy. And so um, we have all of those materials, which was great because that was one way that I could find out where they had been and they'd been down in the Everglades and in Pahokee. And so there were several of us who got together. We got a grant uh, to uh, do go back to those communities and see what kind of music was there. And it was African-American music. And it was phenomenal, uh, the continuity of music that was happening uh, in some of these communities. So we would go back, and some of the people were still alive who had been <laughs> recorded by, say, Zora Neale Hurston when they were like a teenager, and they were now you know, in their 70s and uh, still playing music, still remembered. That was the other thing that, that struck me was that when we would talk to people about, do you remember being recorded by you know, the Federal Writers Project. Oh, it was like the biggest um, thing in their lives, mm -hmm. you know, that they, yeah. And um, we would play them some of the recordings, and that, it would bring tears to your eyes because they had forgotten about that. They they had not heard these recordings. So that was the other thing I said, you know, wherever we go and record, we've got to give copies to everybody so that their grandchildren can hear you know, yeah. what these people sounded like, you know. So. I, I think that's a really important part of public folklore is this idea that we, we give back to the community, mm -hmm. that it's not about, you know, pursuing research for your own academic interest. It's about doing right. community good. You know, it is a form of social activism, you know, that this is part right. of what we do as, as public folklore. Right. And just being able to, um, uh, I know when we do things like, um, well, like you did the Make and Break uh, uh, Festival boat Vista, and, yeah. engine festival. I bet you, you know, I, I live over in the Bonavista uh, Peninsula now, and they're still talking about it. I mean, they it was the first time anybody with, you know, from St. John's has come over and said, <laughs> "Wow, you know, this is really this is really an important thing. It's a it's a really good thing," and uh, um, I guess that's what made me realize that I was really in the right job, that I really didn't want to teach. I really wanted to do public folklore. I wanted to go out and be part of the community. And I guess the hardest part about it is is that you get really close to people when you're doing a project, say you're doing a documentary or something, and you're living with them for months and then you have to go on to the next, the next project. And yeah. so eventually, so it's like this whole family that then you you don't see much of. But, they, you know, people come into your life and they never go out of your life. So eventually you're, you're just kind of overwhelmed with how many Christmas cards you're sending out. <laughs> you <know? laughs> Uh, mm -hmm. I wanted to talk to you uh, about the next generation, what, you uh -huh. know, because I know you have thoughts about, uh, the, you know, the importance of carrying things on. Oh, yeah. I, well, I think the uh, what we were saying before about how uh, the equipment and the things that you need to go out in the field and really talk to people um, 
have gotten so easy to use that you could actually, for the first time, there's not a lot of expense involved in getting a, you know, a Nagra tape recorder or this or that or a big, uh, you know, Nikon, uh, camera. You can actually go out with very credible equipment that is very affordable for teenagers and for, you know, high school and college kids who are really interested in this kind of work. Mm -hmm. And they could go out and um, uh, do this with a minimal amount of outlay. Uh, Before, in the past, it really was like you had to be part of a program or uh, you had to have access to this equipment if you were really going to be a documentarian. So the next generation coming up is so savvy about using equipment. I mean, they I'm always asking my kids, <laughs> you know, how to, <laughs> yeah. you know, I got this phone that does all this stuff and <laughs> yeah. I, you know, how do I do this? I want to do a video. So they're they're doing it anyway. They're doing it through social media. There there's a lot of documentation going on. And so it would take just um, maybe some uh, careful uh, mentoring and, and, uh, you know, teaching on focusing what you're going to document. And you've got a whole cadre of uh, uh, kids who are ready and willing and able to document their parents, grandparents, um, so and if, all of that. If you're going to give uh, advice to a young person who's mm-hmm. who's interested in going out and doing work in the field, you, you know, drawing on your experience as a as a field worker, what what words, what pearls of wisdom would you, <laughs> would you give the next generation? Uh, um, well, one, uh, you know, this is funny, but. Far is never far enough. When you're doing field work, you're in the car and you think, oh, no, I've missed it. I've missed it. Far is never far enough. Keep going. Yay. Next mile, you'll get there. But the other thing is, I, I think I would say to young people that um, don't be afraid to uh, to really talk to people uh, on the uh, one-on-one level. There And there are many, many... Um, resources out now online. I mean, everything from StoryCorps to, um, you know, I know Mon, you have um, guidelines mm-hmm. that are up yeah. there. The American Folklife Center has guidelines. So if somebody really wants to get a story, and, and I think it's really important, though, if you're going to go out and talk to people, you need to do your homework. You need to know exactly what it is you're you're wanting to know and let people tell their own story and be respectful of that and um and go try it yeah, <laughs> yeah. i think it's really important to to actually go out and do it you know mm-hmm. you you, ha- you learn so much just from doing the interviews well it's it's also interesting that um in the past generations a lot of times uh, folks could get a Ph.D. in folklore and never do any field work because they would be more of the scholar and the, and there's always a, a place for that too to be uh, someone who really takes all of this material that's there and, you know, put it together and and um, come to conclusions. But to me, doing field work, if you're going to be a folklorist, you really need to know how to do field work, 
and uh, so many programs um, in the past had not really emphasized field work, and I think that's changed in this generation, and especially because there were so many of us who came out in the 70s and 80s, and there aren't a lot of teaching jobs, and so you're coming out, and you know you're going to be out there in the field, and so... uh, I th- I think that's really important. So doing the field work then is is key. Oh, totally. Yeah. Yeah, and if you don't like field work, uh you <laughs> might want to go into something else. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to thank you very much for coming on the show. Oh, this has been an absolute you. treasure to have you mm-hmm. have you in on your vacation, uh, yeah. you know, to drag you in uh, to the <laughs> studio. So thank you for coming in. Oh, thank you. <laughs> You've been listening to Living Heritage on CHMR Radio. I'm Dale Jarvis, and our production assistant is Tara Barrett. Living Heritage is a production of CHMR Radio 93.5 in collaboration with the Intangible Cultural Heritage Office of the Heritage Foundation of Newfoundland and Labrador. You can find us online at ichblog.ca, or you can download the podcast on iTunes. Thanks for listening. <laughs>